I want to invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Mark chapter 9, where we'll be looking at verses 30 through 50 tonight. Uh, Before we look at the last half of Mark's uh, chapter here in chapter 9 together, I think it's important to just briefly kind of orient ourselves to where this text fits within the flow of Mark's gospel. Uh, In the first half of Mark, in chapters 1 through 8, he has been holding out to us, the reader, this driving question, who is Jesus? Who is this one who heals with such power? Who is this one who speaks with such authority, who ministers with such kindness? And the answer to that question we see in chapter 8, verse 29, in Peter's confession, when he says, you are the Christ. That is, you are the Messiah. You are the long-awaited, anointed one, the King, the Redeemer who will redeem us, who will save us from oppression. And while Peter's confession is certainly orthodox, It's a confession that is still, as we go through the rest of Mark's gospel, we see it's a confession that's somewhat hazy on his part, that he understands Jesus' role as Messiah, but yet there's still confusion over what exactly that means. And we'll see that from our text tonight. And then as Peter makes that confession about the identity of Jesus, we see this shift that happens in the ministry of Christ in Mark's focus, we could say, really in verse 31. It's there that Jesus begins to very clearly teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and then after three days rise again. And so as Jesus begins to use this must language... Clearly, he is teaching the disciples that the purpose for which he came is to die upon the cross and to rise again. And then you see what Jesus does as he begins fusing together. You see his purpose in his earthly ministry and the calling uh, upon his followers. We see the humility of Christ through his life, uh, death, resurrection, of course, Um, But what is the implications, you see, of his earthly ministry for those who would call themselves his disciples? And so it's important as we look at the Gospels, as we look at Mark together tonight, to have this twofold understanding of the purpose for which Christ came. Certainly, as we read the Gospels, we're growing in our knowledge and in our awareness of what Christ accomplished in his earthly ministry At the same time, we are growing to understand the implications for our own lives. What is the calling that results because of the finished work of Christ, namely one of faith and repentance for those who would be his followers? In chapter 1 of Mark in verse 15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so you see, every time we come to Scripture, we encounter the living Lord. Wherever we turn in Scripture, we encounter the living Lord. And the question that we ought to take away from the text of Scripture, every time that we read His Word, every time that we hear it proclaimed to us, is where do I myself need to grow in greater faith and repentance? And certainly this calling of discipleship is a high calling. We see that at the end of chapter 8 here, continuing on into chapter 9. This calling of discipleship is not something that is optional for some. 
for those who are sort of super Christians, those who would lay aside perhaps all things and sacrifice serving in faraway lands. But this is a calling for all who would call themselves followers of Christ. In chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And again, we continue to see that theme of discipleship here tonight in Mark 9. Let's begin uh, again in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. As we bow before you in humility now, we acknowledge our need for the work of your Spirit within our hearts. We are dependent upon you alone to illuminate our minds and hearts to the truth of your word. And so would you grow us in understanding the great news of the gospel and what the calling of discipleship is and ought to look like in our own lives. And in the name of Christ and for his sake we pray. Amen. Well, in this, in this section of Mark, I notice first of all, The weakness of the disciples, we see that in verses 30 through 37. We see, first of all, that the disciples did not understand Jesus in verse 32 when he speaks plainly to them about his death and resurrection. In verse 31, again, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after three days he will rise again. Now, in other places, when Jesus says, for example, as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Or when he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days, 
you can sort of understand in those contexts why there might be a little bit of confusion on the part of the disciples on what Jesus is talking about. But when he speaks so clearly, the Son of Man is going to die and after three days rise again from the dead. You can't help but wonder, why don't they get that? It seems so clear. I don't see how much clearer Jesus could be, so what's the problem? Well, there are a couple of reasons why I think it's tough for the disciples to understand. You see, if Jesus says, as he does here, that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of Jesus' enemies, then, of course, that deliverance means that someone is going to betray him in order to hand him over to those who would be his enemies. And so, undoubtedly, they did not want to acknowledge that one of them was going to fulfill this role. But I think another reason why they didn't get what Jesus was saying was because of their understanding and their expectation of what Messiah was going to do. Now, any good Jewish boy, as all of the disciples were, would have been taught from a very young age that a descendant of David was coming, that he would ascend to the throne, and that he would bring peace to the land. You probably know that one of the the titles that Jesus uses most frequently to refer to himself is this title, Son of Man. He only uses that title a couple of times in those first eight chapters of Mark's gospel. But right after Peter's confession, it's a title that he uses much more frequently, some 13 times uh, in the rest of Mark. And again, the disciples would, because of their understanding of Old Testament Scripture, would have known that this Son of Man figure is someone that Daniel saw in one of his night visions. Turn with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, in verse 13... Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." I mean, here is this amazing vision you see that Daniel has. This figure appears from above, this figure who is divine in nature. And we read that all peoples from all nations of the world will come before him and will bow before him and will serve him. And his kingdom and his dominion will last forever. Now, these are among the most amazing words that we read throughout the Old Testament. This is an expectation that would have been in the hearts of God's people that simply could not be rivaled. And so for Jesus to take that title, Son of Man, upon himself is a claim of kingship. It's a claim of divine authority, a claim of divinity. If Jesus is this king, if he is the deliverer, if he is this Messiah, then of course A king establishes his rule and authority. He establishes his kingdom by displacing those who would be in his way. And what king in human history has ever established himself without some sort of military campaign? It would simply be unheard of. You see, the disciples 
would have not only this understanding of this Son of Man figure who was to come and do such amazing things, but they would have also expected someone else, someone who we read about this morning from Isaiah chapter 50, someone who we read about several times through the book of Isaiah, one who will come and save his people from their sins by suffering in their place, one who would come and would take the transgressions of God's people upon himself, one who is a suffering servant of the Lord. And so you see what Jesus is doing is he's bringing together these two great anticipated events, this Son of Man figure and this suffering servant, that in their minds they don't understand how they fit together, but Jesus is bringing them together, you see, in himself. Yes, he is the Son of Man, the divine figure from Daniel 7 who will establish an eternal kingdom. Yes, he is the long-awaited Messiah who will deliver his people from sin and captivity. But he is also the suffering servant, the one who came to earth for the purpose of dying upon the cross for the sins of his people. And so when Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the disciples get it in part. But when Jesus begins saying that he must die, that just does not fit with their understanding. And that is why they do not understand what we see so clearly. Jesus, you see, is not, as many people around us think, just an example for us to follow. He is not one who came to die to show us what true love looks like. But understand that Jesus had to die in order to make you right with God. And understand that this was the reason for which he came. It's because of our sin against our great creator that we justly deserve his wrath and his displeasure. But because of Jesus' work for us, we can have peace with God by faith alone. And we go on and we see the weakness of the disciples, not only in that they did not understand what Jesus said, but we also read in verse 32 that when Jesus speaks about his death and resurrection, they are afraid to ask him what he meant. So we can understand why they were confused because of their false understanding and expectations of what they read in Scripture But now, again, you've got to wonder, why don't they just go to Jesus and ask for clarification? Why were they so afraid? Were they afraid that Jesus was going to look at them and say, I chose poorly. You all are fired, and I'm getting some new disciples. Some who are not so dim-witted as you. They've known Jesus. They've spent their, earthly, their time with him in his earthly ministry. They know that he is not unapproachable. They know that he is kind and merciful and gracious and compassionate. So why not just ask? Well, perhaps because Jesus speaks with such determination, with such confidence about the purpose for which he came, that they feel as though they should know what he's talking about. Perhaps they're afraid to ask Jesus because they simply don't want to face the reality of what's coming. We don't want him to die. He's not supposed to die. Maybe he's just being a bit melancholy and he'll get over it. If we talk about it, then we're just sort of adding more flesh to it. It's becoming more of a reality. So let's perhaps just not talk about it and it won't happen. You see, they've been devoting their life to following Jesus in the hopes that his kingdom will be established. And if that kingdom is not established, that means all of their efforts in following him have been worthless. 
Now think for a moment about how this might be true in your own life. Perhaps you come to Christ with certain expectations. You're giving your life to Him. You sacrifice time each week to come and to worship together with God's people. You pull out of your driveway on a Sunday evening and your neighbors are playing with their children outside enjoying the cool breeze of a Sunday afternoon. But you are going to worship. You are sacrificing that time. You're giving to the Lord. You sacrifice financially as well. You serve the risen King, the one who is the ruler over heaven and earth. Isn't life supposed to be a little bit easier? Aren't things supposed to be more predictable? Why so much suffering? Why so much heartache? Why so much disappointment in my life and discouragement? I'm afraid to ask because I don't think I'm going to like the answer that I hear. And so we see weakness in their lack of understanding. We see weakness as it's present in their fear in not approaching Jesus. But we also see weakness of the disciples as they argue amongst themselves about position. As they're walking along the road from one town to the next, they begin to argue among themselves about which of them is the greatest. Let's sort of push out of our mind all the things that Jesus is saying about his death. Let's just go back to our understanding of him being this earthly king and let's speculate about positions that we will hold when he ascends to the throne. Such weakness and such foolishness and such pride on their part. While Jesus is speaking plainly about his death, not only do they not get it, but they argue among themselves about which of them is the greatest. They talk about self-centeredness. I'm going to the cross for your sin. I'm going there to bear the sin of the world upon myself. And they turn right around and posture for power. And you can see it now. I was among the first that he chose. Well, I was the first that he chose. Well, I was there when he rose the little girl back to life. I saw the joy on the face of her parents in that upper room. Well, he spent time at my house. He healed my mother when she was sick. Well, I was there on the Mount of Transfix... Oh, I'm not supposed to talk about that yet. I forgot. You see, it's easy to point out their foolishness. It's easy to point out the petty nature of this argument. But what about you? You know, we come together each week to hear the truth from God's Word. Each week we're reminded of the grand and the lofty themes of redemption that permeate Scripture, that the eternal Son of God came to earth to bring you redemption. And yet how quickly your mind wanders to all of the things that you have to do in the coming week. How quickly we shift from the great work that our Savior has done for us to the petty problems that we encounter in our life. We complain about how hard our life is because we want to exalt ourselves just like the disciples, don't we? In our pride, we want others to think that we have the most difficult life there is. Look at me. Look at how full my schedule is. Look at how many things I have committed myself to. Look at how much I have to do and how many people want my attention. Look at all of my responsibilities and how full life is. Look at me. In our pride, we convince ourselves that our life is more full and hectic and more difficult than anyone else. And we allow that pride to take grip within our hearts to the point that we too become unfaithful just like the disciples. There are these grand and lofty themes of redemption, you see, that God from all eternity past 
has known you and has sent His Son to die for you, to redeem you in His grace and mercy, to adopt you as a child of God. And yet we foolishly draw the attention back to ourselves instead of being driven by a desire for His glory. And so as you consider the weakness and the frailty of the disciples, consider your own life and give thought to where you see inconsistency and foolishness and pride. And then notice that Jesus responds lovingly and patiently to the disciples' weakness. They're afraid to go to Him and ask Him, but that doesn't prevent Him from graciously and kindly giving them instruction to address their hearts. Jesus asks them what they are talking about as they walk along the road, knowing full well what they're saying, but they're too embarrassed to tell Him. We were just talking about which one of us is the greatest. But He knows their hearts, and He says in verse 35, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So notice what Jesus is doing here. Turning the world's notion of leadership and influence and power upside down. We think that the way to influence and status and leadership is to be on the top. We're told from a very early age that that's the goal that you should set for yourself in life. Do whatever it takes to achieve influence and power. But instead, Jesus is saying that that comes through serving. Later in Mark, in chapter 10, Jesus puts it like this in verse 45, that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. If anyone had the right to demand service, it was Jesus. If anyone could have asked others to cater to His needs, it was the God of the universe who is here in flesh. And yet instead, He humbles Himself and becomes obedient to death, even death upon the cross. And if this is true of Jesus, then again it is to be and ought to be true of His disciples as well. What does this mean for you and for me? Well, very simply, we are called to a life of service. We are called not to think of our own needs, but to think of the needs of others before we think of our own. It's a very simple thing for us to think of ourselves, isn't it? From the moment we wake up in the morning to the time that we go to bed, the things that, that fill our minds, that predominate our thoughts, are what we want to do throughout our day, and the expectations that we have on everyone else around us, and how they are to cater to our desires. Probably very rare that someone has to come to you and say, stop thinking about others and think about yourself for a change. And so ask yourself, where in my life do I need to lay aside that sense of entitlement and that desire to be served, but instead to serve others? Perhaps it's at home. when we have that tendency to blame everyone else for the mess that we experience instead of just reasoning to ourselves, what should I do and what ought I do to help out? When you get home at the end of the day and you're exhausted and you want everyone else to serve you because you're convinced that you're more tired than everyone else. Or perhaps at work. Perhaps a tendency that you may have to just sort of do enough to get by or work diligently when others are there to watch you in your diligence, hoping that someone will recognize you and reward you for the things that you do. Imagine what sort of impact it would have upon others if you were to volunteer to do those lowly tasks. If at everything that you did, you worked as though you were serving unto the Lord. Imagine, give thought to what a Christ-centered, servant, 
type of attitude should look like and ought to look like in your own life. And then to help us understand what Jesus is talking about, he goes on and gives them an object lesson of what their life as a disciple is to look like. In verse 36, he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Again, humility is to be a lifelong characteristic of the one who claims to be in Christ. So to call yourself a follower of Christ necessitates a life of service and humility. Now, there are places in the Bible where Jesus says that our faith is to be like that of a child. He says it later in Mark chapter 10. But here, Jesus draws a child out of the crowd as an example of how we are to think of those in lowly positions if we call ourselves a follower of Christ. Now, children today play a much different role in our society than they did at the time of Jesus. People today do all sorts of crazy things for their children. We won't spend time talking about that because perhaps you're one of them. (laughs) But in an agrarian society, a child is just a liability until he gets to the point where he can actually do something to contribute to the betterment of the household. Now, let's be honest. A child is whiny. A child is loud. A child is self-centered, at times annoying, not very thankful, a drain on all of your resources. But we are to receive even those considered lowly as evidence of our union with Christ. It's easy for us to love the lovely, isn't it? To simply gravitate toward those whom we are like-minded of and accepting of. But what about the difficult? What about those who are a drain? See, we have a tendency, I think, to look at our relationships in life and sort of weigh them on a cost-to-benefit sort of analysis. Maybe not explicitly, but we think that oftentimes within our heart. Every relationship in our life, we know, requires some sort of an effort on our part. It takes time. It takes emotional energy. It requires sacrifice on our part. But am I getting something more out of that relationship than I have to put in? Do I laugh more when I round those other people? Do I feel better about myself? Do I have my longing for acceptance and approval met? See, we all have people in our life, people whom we are called to serve and to show the love of Christ toward, but people who are difficult to love. And yet we are called to make the most of every opportunity and to care for others. And so you see, it's the union that we have with Christ that is to compel us to show love and unity towards others. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, in commenting on this verse, says that Jesus illustrates the kingdom of God with this illustration of a child, that only when you welcome little ones like this have you really learned to welcome me, and only when you have learned to welcome me have you welcomed the Father who sent me. And then in verse 38, almost as if to highlight the dull nature of the disciples, Mark records the words of John. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Why is this so upsetting to John? No doubt as he speaks, he's speaking not only for himself, but on behalf of the others as well. We are the ones who left all to follow you, Jesus. We are the ones who sacrificed. We are the chosen ones, the privileged few. And here is this one out there ministering who is not of us. We even tried to stop him, but he kept on healing in your name. And again, as we put that verse within the context of, I think, what Jesus is teaching, 
that while Jesus is striving to help them see their own pride, they turn right around and allow the pride within their hearts to be exposed again. Now, Jesus is not saying here, don't be discerning. He's not saying, well, as long as someone is using my name, then that sort of gives them permission to do anything. But what matters is not what we think matters. It's not about your level of influence. It's not about your rights or your privileges or your sense of entitlement. What matters is your calling to grow in faithfulness to the Lord. And so perhaps we operate in our lives with sort of a a controlling mindset, you know, a mindset in which uh, we know what everyone else ought to be doing. We reason to ourselves, God loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. But who says it has to be your way? Who says it has to be your, according to your timing? Who says there has to be certain measurable and noticeable results? But your calling, you see, is to live faithfully where God has called you, not to be consumed with the lives of others so that you're failing to consider your own heart. Now, again, this does not mean that you don't speak the truth and love to those who might need to be exhorted. But it does mean that you stop making assumptions. Kevin DeYoung in his blog this past week put it like this. It fits well, I think, with what Mark is recording here. As sinners, he says, we are apt to assume the worst about people. We are eager to find favorable comparisons that make ourselves look good at the expense of others. We are quick to size people up and think we have them figured out. But don't assume you know all the facts after hearing one side of the story. Don't assume the person is guilty just because strong charges are made against him. Don't assume others won't care what you say. Don't assume bad kids are the result of bad parents. Don't assume your parents are clueless. Don't assume everyone should drop everything to attend to your needs. Don't assume that no one will. Don't assume the rich are ungenerous and don't assume the poor are lazy. Don't assume everyone has forgotten about you. Don't assume everyone else has a charmed life. Don't assume a bad day makes her a bad friend. Don't assume the repentance isn't genuine. And don't assume the forgiveness isn't sincere. Don't assume God can't change you. Don't assume God can't love you. Don't assume God can't love them. And last, the calling of discipleship here means that we, as his disciples, give careful consideration and and address the entire life. We see that in verses 43 through 50. There's a lot that could be said here on these few verses alone. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God lame than to be cast into hell. Now, some in church history have taken such teaching literally. But the point, of course, is to address the serious nature of sin the importance of considering your own heart in dealing with the reality of indwelling sin. Perhaps we look at others who struggle with obvious problems, or perhaps we condemn the person who is caught in some horrible act. But you see, when we do that, when we perhaps reason to ourselves, I would never do something like that, we've already opened the door to allow that sin to take its foothold within our own hearts. Yes, sin makes people do a lot of stupid things. 
and you can look at the stupid things that people do, and you can delight in their stupidity. Or you can look at the stupid things that people do, and you can reason to yourself, thank you, Lord, for restraining the stupidity within my own heart. And help him, O oh God. Help him, O oh God, to grow in faith and repentance. And help me to consider my own heart and to eradicate the sin within. What we learn in these verses is that any level of accommodation with sin is sheer foolishness. And as you take an honest look at the deceptive nature of sin within your own heart, pay attention to the tendency that you have to qualify sin or to quantify your sin. When we qualify our sin, we're saying things like, yes, but. Yes, I reacted in anger but you have no idea what it's like to live with that person. Yes, I have bitterness and discouragement and hostility and a desire for vengeance, but you have no idea how I've been treated. Yes, I have a bad attitude about these circumstances in my life, but you have no idea of the pain and the hurt and the conflict and the discouragement that I go through every single day of my life. And so to qualify our sin is to say, yes, but... And to quantify our sin is to say, yes, I struggle with lust, but at least I'm not committing adultery. Yes, I'm an angry person, but it's not like I'm murdering someone. It's just a little complaint. It's a little bit of grumbling. It's a little bit of gossip. At the end of my day, it just helps to cathartically purge myself of all of the frustration and disappointment that I've experienced in my day. But what Jesus is saying is pretty serious. Either address the sin in your life as it is exposed by the truth of God's word and grow in your hatred toward it, seeking to cut it off, or risk eternal condemnation. You know, we have in our own time this tendency in which as anonymity increases, boldness and blindness on our part rising as well. Don't ever assume that your sin is hidden. Don't ever assume that it will remain hidden. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. I mean, this alone should be enough to wake us up. See, what Jesus is saying here is that there is a connection between your heart and the way that you live your life. And so if you want to know what is in your heart, look at your life more closely. What sorts of things do you allow your eyes to see and to engage in in which you have perhaps sort of numbed your conscience to those things that used to be shocking to you? What sorts of things do you allow your mind and your feet and your hands to gravitate toward? Your sinfulness will be evident in your behavior. Your heart will be exposed in those areas of life. And as those those who belong to the Lord Jesus, our calling is to pursue a life of holiness, to pursue a life of purity. And it ought to be so evident in our lives that there is great and positive impact upon the world around us. But as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus, we are called to be salt in a world that is filled with darkness. And so, what all of this, I think, is driving toward is to drive us to ask heart-revealing questions of ourselves. Am I treating sin casually? 
Am I willing to be cleansed as the Lord brings fiery trials into my life? Am I living the kind of life which will make a real impact on society? Am I really preserving and pursuing loving relationships with my fellow Christians? Am I looking for opportunities actively to serve? Do I welcome the intrusion in my life of others whom God has placed there to help me see more clearly because of my tendency toward blindness? As you consider the high calling of discipleship, and as you see inconsistencies within your own life, again, as God's Word acts as that mirror revealing our hearts to us, there are a couple of things that are important for us to keep in mind. In the words of Thomas Watson, as sin becomes more bitter, Christ ought to become more sweet. And so we don't stay there by any means. Dwelling upon our sin becomes sort of, becoming sort of morbidly introspective, dwelling upon all of our failures. But we look within and we allow that glance within to drive us outside to see our need again and again for the risen Christ. And second, we need to be driven by the eyes of faith not by feelings of guilt. Ed Welch puts it like this, the conscience has the power to make us feel guilty, but not innocent. It has the power to say, don't do that, but not the power to keep us from doing it. The conscience, when it is our only source of information, will end with some form of penance or self-salvation strategy. Deny yourself, punish yourself, try harder, and so on. It's not able to give direction on how to be right with God. We need a new way of seeing through the eyes of faith. It is here that we see Christ taking away all the evil that our conscience tells us we have and gives us every good thing that our conscience tells us we lack. And so may the good news of the gospel be the thing that you recall throughout your week. May the good news of the risen Christ In your place as a disciple of Christ, may that identity as a disciple and a follower of the Lord Jesus be the identity-forming reality that shapes not only your week, but your entire life. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word that exposes the heart and shows us our need again for the work of our Savior. We're grateful that even in this narrative, in Mark chapter 9, we see such tender patience, mercy on the part of our Savior. May we be driven to see our need for His redeeming work again and again, never tiring of hearing of the good news of the gospel. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.